0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for the day. And uh, joining me in a virtual studio from all across the planet today are Erica, Doug, and Gabby. Unfortunately, uh, Tiffany is not going to be with us today. She had other engagements, so we'll miss her. Um, Today our topic is toxins in the diet or toxic food additives. So we're going to be talking about artificial sweeteners, flavor enhancers, things like that, what the dangers of them are, um, and especially how you can identify uh, some of the names because the names have been uh, confused, changed. Some of them are named other things now, and so you kind of need to know Uh, what to look for, Um, so we'll be covering that information uh, and a little bit about the history of some of these things, uh, and then we'll have a good recipe at the end for uh, sweet pork ribs uh, utilizing stevia. So uh, I guess to start us off today, uh, we're going to connect the dots a little bit with some uh, items from the news. Um, Erica, do you want to start us off about deceptive labeling? Yes.
1: Yes. So in the news uh May 3rd from Dr. Mercola's website mercola.com it's called Perception Management Deceptive Labeling Tricks and Hidden Ingredients in Processed Food Stuff. And basically this is a informative article about a new book that's out on the market called Swallow This Serving Up the Food Industry's Darkest Secrets and it's written by a Scottish author named Joanna Blythman, and she's written a behind-the-scenes exposé about the food industry, and uh, she's an award-winning investigative journalist with a background that has served her well uh, going undercover. So basically, she uh, went undercover into the processed food industry to get the dirt on what's going on in, in food preparations. Um she basically said uh, non-insiders uh, do not know that there's a multiple uh, multiple chemicals in, used in your food and um, they're not being disclosed. Uh, she reveals that there's an array of additives that will never be put on labels, and we're going to discuss that today, what some of those additives are and some of the names that they go by. Um she also talks about uh, 150 enzymes that are being used in food manufacturing and that they're never or rarely listed on the label. And uh, there's at least typically one enzyme-modified ingredient in every processed food. Breads usually have five enzyme-modified ingredients. And she th- says that enzymes by themselves aren't intrinsically toxic. They're merely functional proteins composed of natural amino acids. But they what they do is mask and deceive you about the underlying process of how these additives are put into the food. Um, she says most processed food is an imitation of the real thing. So the goal of food technologists is to reduce the amount of real ingredients by finding cheap substitutes that mimic authentic food in doing so. Uh, chemicals and processors are used to turn the end product into something that looks and smells like food and tastes like good food, but really it's anything but that. And she uses butter as an example. Uh, rarely is butter used in foods, processed foods because it's expensive, so they use additives that make it taste like butter. You know, you think of like buttered popcorn. Um but they still put enough butter in the product to to be able to say on the label that it's made with real butter. Um, the reason that these flavorings are added to processed food is because they cover up the unpleasant taste that comes as a result of heavy processing, and they also use flavorings to give food uh, a flavor that, again, has been taken out through the manufacturing process. She also explains an important thing about this whole clean label concept, and we discussed this in a previous show about this uh, stoplight labeling, you know, where they wanted to put stoplight images on food packages, packaging, uh, red, yellow, and green to show if the product was good. Um, in this uh, expose on the industry, she talks about clean labels and uh, the, how the food industry realizes that consumers don't like long, chemical-sounding names on ingredients lists. They're, they're known as label polluters, right? So you pick up a package and you've got all these ingredients that you can't read. So what they're trying to do is change those names to deceive the consumer so mm-hmm. to avoid having the list of chemical names. They've invented a clean label concept, which is aimed at removing all the old additives and long chemical names and replacing them with ingredients that sound better. So like carrot concentrate instead of coloring um, is just one example of this clean label swap. Also a related issue is the extraction method used for for healthy sounding extracts. She says, while antioxidants are healthy, plant-derived antioxidants are typically extracted from the whole food using toxic organic uh, solvents like hexane, which you can't remove. So these solvents remain in the ingredients, and they're not required to put that on the label. Mm -hmm. And finally, she talks about how perception is everything so the pr- processed food industry is primarily driven by the perception of wholesomeness, and we see this a lot with all natural you know um, good for you low sugar low salt um, basically they're going they're going rename it or find an alternative way that may be just as bad or worse that doesn't give a negative association and She goes on to quote directly from the article, perception is a really good word for understanding what the food manufacturing industry is up to. They have this thing called perceived naturalness. Their whole job is to try and give you ingredients that sound natural, but actually aren't the same as natural. Another one is fresh light quality. The industry doesn't talk about fresh any longer. They talk about fresh light quality. There are a number of technologies that they can use behind the scenes and mainly on labels that will give products this fresh light quality. Everything related to naturalness and freshness is being manipulated constantly. And so she said that, uh, you know basically she uses this bread fresh bread that you can buy at your grocery store as an example you know they say oh fresh baked it's really not fresh baked it's just again this perception management and um, this is how the food manufacturers kind of keep perpetuating this whole idea that their food is healthy that it's just as good as home-cooked food and whatnot so again Hence the name of the article, Perception Management. And then she goes on to discuss how the foxes are watching the hen house um, about government oversight and, uh, you know, the consumer's interest. So she goes uh, on to say, more often than not, government oversight committees are usually manned by members of the food industry who have a vested interest in commercializing these chemical ingredients or they're academics who appear on first glance to be independent, but in actuality, you know, they're getting a lot of funding from the food companies. Most of the research used to establish safety is also done by the industry itself, which structures the research to show that its product is safe, and no one is really looking at the health effects of exposure to toxins from processed foods. And we see the same kind of approach in the whole heavily debated genetically modified organism issue, right, GMO foods. So um, she goes on to finish up here. What happens to people who eat large quantities of processed foods? And she says there are all these assumptions that chemicals are fine in small quality quantities, but that's not really looking at the cocktail effect for people, particularly children, and who are obviously more prone to be being affected by a chemical overload. No one is looking at that at the moment. And um so basically we've got to catch up with the industry because they really bypass our comprehension of what they're doing to our food. So it's just massive manipulation and as we'll discuss later in the show today, it's by design. They don't really want you to know what you're eating and it's best that You know, even if you're an avid food label, if they can deceive you, they will do their darndest to do that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, well, we see that happening all over the place, um, not just with food labeling, but pretty much everything, uh, especially in the the mainstream media, you know, obfuscating, using easy words, um, easy language, you know, to, to... muddle the issue and and allow people to digest it more easily mentally um, so that they're like, well, it's natural carrot juice as opposed to it being, you know, some sort of a toxic flavor enhancer. Um, Exactly. Well, that, uh, speaking of modern life, we have uh, something here. Uh, Gabby wants to cover an item on uh, how modern life depletes gut microbes. And it's not necessarily just, specifically what you eat, it's our, it's our lifestyle. Gabby, do you want to go over that a little bit?
2: Yeah, it's also a Dr. Mercola article published at Southnet last week, and it's titled, "Mother's Life Depletes Your Gut Microbes in a Number of Different Ways. It basically reminds us that destroying our gut flora with antibiotics, pharmaceutical drugs, environmental chemicals, and toxic foods is a primary factor in raising disease rate. As an example, he quotes a study, you know, a recent study which showed that repeated use of antibiotics may raise your risk of type 2 diabetes by up to 37%. I thought that was like a huge number, you know. And in yeah. this case, it is people who actually had like five curses of quinolones. Kinolones are the antibiotics. The prime example is cipro. Ciprofloxacin, for example, and, well, I was, you know, completely blown away because, you know, even in the ER, I see children, you know, who come with a fever, and I specifically ask them, has he taken antibiotics recently, and the mother will usually say, oh, yes, he's been sick like all the winter, he has taken like four courses, you know, So mm-hmm. it's good to to remember this number, next time I will tell them, uh, the recent, you know, there are studies which show that, you know, his risk of diabetes is raised by 40% now, you know. Hmm. So yes. Then uh, in this article, Dr. Mercola quotes a very interesting study because it was, uh, they compared the god flora of an indigenous Amazonic tribe, we tribe, which is called the Yanomami. And they compared it against the gut flora of Americans, and also a couple of other tribes, which is the Waibo from Venezuela, which has adopted Western-style, you know, Western lifestyle, and the Malawi from Southern Africa, which has also adopted Western lifestyle. And in uh, you know, all, the Yanomami, the indigenous one, the virgin one, so to speak, had about 50% greater microbial diversity than American subjects. And 30-30% wow. more diversity than the Guajibo and Malay, Malay Malawians that have adopted Western lifestyle changes, such hmm. as you know the changes were basically like living indoors, using antibiotics, even you know even just the minimal amount of antibiotics. And uh, the authors, uh, according to the authors, they say that. As cultures become more Western, they lose bacteria species and they start having chronic diseases connected to the immune system, which is allergies and all immune disorders, multiple sclerosis and so forth. So it highlights how pesticides, processed food, over reliance on antibiotics contribute to the dramatic decline in gut microbes. And that sophisticated sanitation, you know, using lots of antibacterial soaps and all that, had even a greater toll in gut flora than antibiotics. You know, mm-hmm. this is like a big eye opener for me, you know, because I really like washing my hands all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> other than GMOs and high fructose corn syrup, which contains mercury, Dr. Mercola highlights uh, polysorbate 80, which is an emulsifier in processed foods and in vaccines as well. And it destroys gut flora, you know. So, yes, these are the main highlights. It was interesting for me that he was recommended other than fermented foods and probiotics. He recommended getting your hands dirty in the garden, you know, opening your windows to improve diversity and health of the microbes in your home, and uh, washing dishes by hand instead of a dishwasher, because it leads to more bacteria, <laughs> and yes, and not to be so obsessed with washing your hands all the time, so I'll keep that in mind. <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, it goes back to that hygiene hypothesis we talked about in an earlier show that this obsessive mm-hmm. cleanliness is really not benefiting people as much as they believe. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
3: I've even read about yeah. how uh chlor- chlorinated water is another thing that uh that will um, you know, have a detrimental effect on your gut bacteria. So just not filtering out the chlorine from your water is is, is killing off your good guys.
2: Yeah. yeah
1: we noticed that a lot in farming uh with the over the years they tended to chlorine chlorinate the water much more and it would actually yellow the plant severely i mean it got to be so noticeable and a really easy thing that people can do if they you know if they get a bill from their water company, it will tell you how much chlorine they add to the water if you have house plants or even a little garden. You can fill up um, barrels or buckets of water and let them sit for at least 24 to 48 hours and the chlorine Mm -hmm. will off gas. So that's Mm -hmm. one way you can deal with high chlorine levels in your water if you're um, growing plants and whatnot or if you start to see a massive yellowing. I mean, it's it's like what happens when you accidentally pour bleach on your clothes, you know? Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, and I think also the fluoride in the water has also a bad effect.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: At least as Dr. Mercola reminded after, you know, GMOs, antibiotics, chlorinated water, uh, Roundup, you know, agricultural chemicals, antibacterial soap, but also fluoridated water. So it highlights the importance of filtering your water, at least with, you know, any means that you have. is better than nothing, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, that um, next on our list here for Connecting the Dots, uh, we have uh, something regarding the media being influenced by the biotech industry. Doug, do you want to enlighten us on that?
3: Yeah, sure. This was uh, an article that was published on SOT, um, uh, written by the Alliance for Natural Health on May 5th. Um, and it was talking about how... Um, Chipotle restaurants, um, and I don't know how many of our listeners are gonna be familiar with them, but uh, in the States, they're quite popular. We've got a couple up in Canada here. Um, I don't know if they've reached uh, kind of worldwide yet, but um, they're kind of a a popular uh, fast food um, restaurant, uh, like Mexican food. Um, On April 27th, they announced in a press release that they would become the first national restaurant company to use only non-GMO ingredients. Um, They were previously, uh, in March of 2013, they were the first uh, national restaurant to, uh, company to voluntarily disclose which ingredients on their menu had GMOs. Um, anyway, instead of being lauded for this move, um, which was no small achievement, uh, the restaurant chain was slammed hard by major news media outlets. Um, the article, uh, I'll just quote from the article here. They say, here's a sampling of some of the headlines. Uh, why Chipotle Mexican Grill going GMO free is terrible news. And that was in Time magazine. Uh, Chipotle's GMO gimmick is hard to swallow. That was in the Washington Post. Uh, Why we can't take Chipotle's GMO announcement all that seriously. That was from NPR. Um, The article goes on. We've come to expect complete and utter lack of balanced reporting and journalistic integrity when it comes to some of the issues that the natural health community uh, cares about. But this sort of vindictive screed against a company for simply trying to satisfy its customers strikes us as particularly egregious and appalling. Uh, The smear job does have one merit, it brings out into the open what GMO investigators have to deal with every day, constant intimidation and threat. Any scientist who dares take on GMO special interests will be told that his or her career will be ruined, and then ever more intense pressure will, will follow. Why? Because the biotech and big pharma companies involved have huge sums of monies at their disposal money that can make or break university research budgets, and money that is channeled in, uh, to media advertising, which is keeping traditional media alive. Uh, rather than anything meaningful any, sorry, rather than adding anything meaningful to the debate, the major media outlets are sending a clear message to the restaurant industry. If you follow Chipotle's footsteps, we will make an example of you. It seems clear that, to us that such a frontal attack by major news outlets must have been instigated by the biotech industry's PR departments. And you know this is this is no real big surprise for regular readers of uh, SOT. You know you, you can you can see that um, you know the the mainstream media knows which side of the bread is buttered on, so they you know always are kind of um, going to be pushing the agenda of um, the people who are paying their bills. Essentially, um, the article talks about how 93% of Americans support GMO labeling. So this move by Chipotle really is. Um, in the interest of their consumers. But, uh, meanwhile, they're just getting, uh, getting slammed for it. Um, you know, companies that respond positively to consumer demand should be applauded, not vilified. Uh, in what universe is it pandering to provide consumers with what they want? So I thought that that was a pretty, uh, pretty telling article. Um, and you really, like in situations like this, you can really see through the media and, you know, what, uh, what interests they're actually serving
0: sure Yeah. but it, it was interesting to me that you think that the article included uh npr in that list because there was certainly a time i know for me in in the past where i thought you know it was like npr was part of the good guys but i began to understand that it's more like national propaganda radio than public radio yeah, yeah.
1: isn't
0: that I what know?
1: it stands All
3: for <laughs> yeah <pretty> much <laughs> yeah I know. I, I used to think that they were kind of one of the good guys too, but uh, but but more recently, some of the stuff that they've been publishing and some of the, uh, the you know the the sides that they've been taking on different issues, particularly the GMOs and the the vaccines and and that sort of thing, really has has opened my eyes to what they're really all about.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess nothing really is sacred anymore. Of course, since, you know, I don't know when the media was. Maybe you just read it at the uh, the advent of its birth, but who knows if you even then. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of the media, we have one positive note, uh, I think, here that's, uh, that Gabby wants to cover for us, and I believe this is a, uh, a documentary from uh, Denmark, is it about the HPV
2: vaccine? Yes, that's right, one redeemable feature about <laughs> mainstream media in this case, Danish Media, uh, which made a documentary available with English title, titled um, The Vaccinated Girls, Sick and Betrayed. And it focuses on the story of three girls suffering from new medical conditions after they were vaccinated against HPV with Gardasil. Um, the one thing they all had in common with thousands of girls around the world, is that they were all very healthy before. They got the vaccine and now they're seriously ill. Um, mm-hmm. they interviewed two Danish doctors from a mainstream hospital and they said they never seen anything similar to that, you know, during their entire careers. One of the doctors, you know, examined around eighty Danish girls whom she suspected had HPV vaccination, adverse effects, and she states quite clearly, you know, they are all busy, they pass out, the vast majority have severe headaches or chronic headaches, and they all have abdominal pain and, and nausea. They have weird muscle movements, which they cannot control, and they're very tired. This documentary, well, it made a huge impact in Denmark, uh, which saw a spike of reports in adverse effects after the HPV vaccine. And, um, I think it is very important because, you know, with all the controversy and all the hysteria around vaccines, um, this could be a good start point for people who, you know, who are very close minded. You know, this was, uh, it was uh, published on TV2 Denmark and it's a mainstream documentary. It's very well made. And um, let's keep in mind now that there are currently 2,500 um, serious adverse reactions for 100,000 people in uh, reported in the, in the paper, you know, um, that comes with the vaccine, with the Gardasil vaccine. And it is, It is then uh, adverse effects disclosed in Merck's latest prescribing information packet, you know, which could be, Mm. which could well be just the tip of the iceberg. So, yes, Mm. Uh, I will keep this one in mind, the good one.
3: What was the name of the documentary again, Gabby?
2: It's called The Vaccinated Girls, Sick and Betrayed. Mm. Okay. And the title of the article at thought.net net is TV2 Denmark documentary on HPV vaccine shows lives of the young woman ruined. So at least mainstream media outlet was able to publish this without censorship. I mean, it is uh, it is true that uh, the government in Denmark doesn't recognize these girls' adverse effects. You know. But at least uh, the doctors are putting forward, you know, their concerns, their research, and they're asking and trying to answer very difficult questions without censorship. So that's a good start of point. Mm. Yeah, I
1: think we're going to see this kind of stuff coming out more and more as as people are suffering adverse effects, you know, and it's happening on such a large scale. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, one can hope. Mm-hmm. Well let's uh let's dive into our topic for today. Um we're gonna start with uh with Erica um covering some points regarding flavor enhancers and their toxicity from uh Dr. Russell Blaylock uh and some uh, some points from a YouTube uh video that he has up. Erica, do you wanna go over that?
1: Yeah. So, um, Dr. Russell Braylock, he has, a, has a, a background in neuroscience, I believe, and um, he has done a lot of research on vaccines as well. So, you can uh, Google his name, see see a lot of different. He speaks of a lot of different things in YouTube videos. That's so really helpful. Um, the name of his video is MSG, Aspartame, and Flavor Enhancers. And, um, I will just state that it's an hour video. Um, he does not go into aspartame. So the title is a little bit misleading, but he does talk extensively about MSG and he defines what excitotoxins are. So, um, basically an excitotoxin is a substance that's added to foods and beverages that literally stimulates neurons to death, causing Damage um, at varying degrees. Uh, they can be found in such ingredients as monosodium glutamate (MSG), aspartame, such as NutraSweet, cysteine, um, hydrolyzed protein, and aspartic acid. And Dr. Blaylock wrote an excellent book called "Excitotoxins: The Taste That Kills." And um, it was one of the first books to address the hazards of food additives. Uh, So, yes, he is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and he cites over 500 scientific studies in this book. And uh, what was interesting in his uh, discussion was that he was saying this was a really hard book to write because uh, he was warned against writing it because... um, People in the food industry would attack him, kind of like we see, you know, with the GMO issue, that they would come after him viciously. And he even talks about how he discussed his topic with Ralph Nader, uh, the candidate that ran for president a few times in the U.S., I believe under the Green Party. Um, uh, Ralph Nader told him he wouldn't touch the issue with the 10-foot pole, that it was just Hmm. way too... you know, uh, just too much to deal with the food industry, the backlash. Um, he goes on to say how no major publication will even write about excitotoxins. So, you know, those kind of Washington Post, Time Magazine, things like that, they won't go there. And um, there's an enormous amount of pressure to keep this issue quiet. Um, he shared that the information was getting out uh, mainly on ro- radio programs and the 700 Club, the Christian uh, TV station. Um, and he even said that health magazines uh, wouldn't carry this information. So it's pretty interesting to to hear him discuss how this is just being shut down, you know, kind of like we see in, in other food uh, issues. So um, he... He talks a little bit about the history of the excitotoxins, mm-hmm. and I wanted to just share some of the notes I took from that because I found it fascinating. Um, originally, back in, during World War II, uh, kombu was being used by the Japanese. Uh It's a type of sea tangle or seaweed kelp um, to enhance. Uh, the rations of Japanese soldiers enhance the flavor, enhance the the compound glutamate, and um, it was named Ajimoto, A J I M O T O, and it basically in Japanese means the essence of taste. And um, in 1948, food manufacturers discovered this food enhancer. Um, and that it enhances taste because it stimulates certain cells in the brain and the tongue. Now, a few years before that, um, oh no, excuse me, in 1948, uh, tremendous amounts of MSG was being added to foods, and um, but it had never been tested for safety. Um, from 1948 to 1956. This, this over 10 million pounds of MSG was being added to foods. And oh. he points out that it was specifically added to baby food and even <laughs> formula. And so we had a discussion about this before our show about, um, you know, this these kinds of things being put in children's foods, you know. And like a child is going to notice, you know, if their food doesn't taste right, it's, it's kind of interesting little subtopic there but um, in 1957 a research project was conducted by some uh, research students and they fed MSG to mice and they found that the MSG destroyed nerve cells in the retina of the eye Hmm. and um, again in 1968 a neuroscientist studied MSG and how it destroyed eye cells and um, a critical part of the brain, it caught, it, um, it. was very serious. And so they presented it to the food manufacturers because they thought it should be taken out. You know, it should be studied for safety. So it was presented, presented to Congress in 1968, and um, the food industry was present, and they were asked to voluntarily remove MSG from... In particular, baby food, right? So that didn't really happen. And for 10 more years, uh the MSG was continually added to the baby food under a different name. And it's also mm-hmm. added to baby formula. So we see just like that perception management article that I started with, that, you know, they have the discussion that the scientists present information that's damning and then they continue using it, Right. So he goes on to talk about um, three big lies of the food industry. Number one, we don't see any problems. And this is interesting because he he states that, oh, we only use small doses. Humans are um, more sensitive than animals, but it's okay. It's only a little bit. It's nothing to be concerned about. A second uh, big lie by the food industry is that Products like MSG don't cross the blood brain barrier. And, um, he's saying that that's not necessarily true. Like, small doses may not cross the blood brain barrier. But when you're getting multiple doses of this thing in your diet, it's, it's going to cross the blood brain barrier and it's particularly negative for children because their brains are still developing especially in uh in utero in, in the belly and then also the first four years of life. And then this one, the the third lie is just so comical. It says eat a lot of carbs and sugar and it will block you it will protect you uh <laughs> from excitotoxicity. And so he he used a funny little um story about how, okay, so if this is true, if you eat a a breakfast that's high in excitotoxins like MSG, you'd have to eat 10 packets of sugar to kind of block that excitotoxicity and it's just ridiculous. So another thing is there's uh many different names for MSG. So I'm not going to go through a whole list cuz again we had a discussion about this before the show and there there's so many different names that they use, but he basically just gives a partial list. So some of the the other names for MSG is uh hydrolyzed vegetable protein, texturized protein, protein extract, whey protein extract, enzymes, yeast extract, natural flavoring, spices, carrageenan. And um, he goes on to say that the FDA only has to label a food product having MSG in it if there's 99% pure MSG. So if it's Hmm. 98%, they don't have to put MSG on the label. And, uh, Foods that are high in MSG are gravies, especially prepared gravies, salad dressings. He says all canned soups, and we see this with, again, that perception management article, like when, with the heavy processing, they lose a lot of the flavor, so they add the MSG back into it. He said Campbell's soup is the worst. Uh, diet mm. drinks, diet foods, once you remove the fat, you remove the taste so they have to add that MSG back in to give the food more taste. And then liquid amino acid preparations. Um, glu- he says glutamate is an excitotoxin in large amounts. And so that's, I really recommend the video for people because he talks about all the neuroscience behind it. And, yes, glutamate is an important amino acid, but too much of it is can become toxic. Um he also talks about the physiology of the excitotoxin process, so what happens to the cell. And again, in the video, he has a lot of um, visual aids to kind of help you understand what what's actually happening in the nerve cell. Um, he said, anything to do with the brain, you know, there's a wide spectrum of disease, excitotoxicity producing issues. It produces issues in different tissues. And... Um, so, you know, in the in the beginning he talks about how all these brain issues, you know, like uh Alzheimer's Parkinson's, uh low uh glycemic or hypoglycemic people excuse me, Huntington disease, these are all kind of related to this excitotoxicity and um you know, and then he goes on to talk about how people say, well, I'm not sensitive to excitotoxins or what they call the Chinese food syndrome. You know, if you eat Chinese food, you, you don't feel well. He said it's not even about food sensitivity or allergies. It's a, a toxin, and it kills your brain cells. It excites the toxins or excites the brain cells to death. Mm-hmm. Um one other thing he says is uh, excitotoxins produce free radicals in the brain. It damages the mitochondria. It activates a suicide gene in the brain to kill the cell or in the cell to kill the cell. And the older you get, the more sensitive or susceptible you are to excitotoxicity. Um, hmm. One last important thing that I wanted to mention is it affects the hypothalamus. And it's, uh, the hypothalamus is most sensitive to injur- injury. And they call it the seat of the soul. And it controls a major amount of everything that happens in the body. <coughs> uh, basically, it controls the endocrine system, the sleep and wake cycles, uh, hunger and satiety. Um, it's the organ of the autonomic uh, system and uh, major limbic system integration area, your emotions, and it also regulates immunity. And he talked a little bit about and introduced the idea of psychoneuroimmunology, this Relationship between emotions and the body and stress. And hopefully, in a show in the future, we can cover that word because, uh, Dr. Gaber Mate has written extensively about this psycho neuroimmunology in a book called When the Body Says No. And, um, one last thing when they exposed animals hypothalamus to MSG it caused suppression of immunity for the entire life of the animal and he's saying the same Mm. thing happens in um, humans that it's a profound life altering changes and intellectual impairment and even offspring are affected so Mm. check out the video it's you know it's frightening in a sense because he just really breaks it down and we've seen in previous shows very similar things with this relationship to disease, how it's just evil that food companies continually put this additive into everything. I mean, it's in every packaged food that you buy and Mm -hmm. it's just the accumulating effect he did stress time and again that children are more susceptible, that their brains are in that crucial developmental period, the first four years of life, and this could lead a, a diet high in MSG or food enhancers, flavors, could really be um, why we're seeing such an incidence in behavior issues, ADHD, diabetes, you know, on and on and on. So. I recommend the book and the video.
0: Well, well, that's quite a bit to digest. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Literally.
0: <laughs> it's, it's frightening to think about the uh, the lifelong implications of that because there was certainly a period of time in my life where you know I went to the the China buffet uh you know, every other day, if not every day for some time and just mild down. Um made mm-hmm. a lot of lot of processed foods, a lot of packaged pizzas, that kind of thing. And so it's like, you know, I wonder how many of my, my brain cells I like, killed off doing that. <laughs> yeah. No, I do, do the same it.
3: thing. I mean I think uh, I, I think the the addictive mm-hmm. potential of these things is really really a big a big issue as well. Um, you know, by, yeah. by taking in these excitotoxins and they overstimulate brain cells and nerve cells. I mean, you, you kind of get addicted to that kind of kick that you get from it. So I think it's it's sure. fully, I fully believe that people who are eating things like McDonald's or, what you know, fast food and packaged food regularly are fully addicted to it.
1: Sure. Yeah, and all these issues with memory, you know. I mean, at one point in the video, he even said, that there's a connection with violence and rage, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just really shocking. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, let's um, talking about flavor enhancers, let's uh, move on a little bit to uh, aspartame, and we're going to cover that for a little while. Um, Gabby, do you want to start us off with this uh, study that you're going to talk about?
2: Yeah. It was uh, published in exactly one year ago, in April 2014. Uh, it was reported that a study done over 10 uh, throughout 20, 10 years, and they sampled 60,000 60, women, uh, and showed that those who drank two or more diet drinks a day are 30% more likely to have a heart attack or stroke, and 50% more likely to die from related disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so these findings were presented at the American College of Cardiology's annual scientific session in Washington, D.C., and it was covered by the media. It saw a drop in in Diet Coke sales, which was good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Yes. I think that, yes, the coke industry has been like, you know, wondering what they can do, which new products they could bring that is more green and natural. In mm-hmm. any case, this is unredeemable. you know, it's like, you know, stroke, heart attack, it's like the worst possible, you know, side effects, you know, and it was recorded. And, um uh, it is, uh, because they use aspartame, which is found in overs in over 6,000 products, including medicines and foods for the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um also linked in other studies with double the risk of fast-paced kidney decline. You know, that's kidney failure, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: another study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that it is likely uh, that it is linked with um, blood cancer. In this, in this case, it is non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and leukemia. Um, This was a very important study. So, you know, another one published in the Journal of Applied Nutrition showed that it caused brain damage. So from everything that we have reviewed, we know that this is absolutely toxic and evil. It does really bad things to your body. And it is not true that it is that it is something that only, like, the Internet or alternative media is addressing, you know. These are studies that were published in mainstream outlets, very, you know, very important scientific uh, publications, and we just don't receive the memos, so to speak. You know, I can still go to the cafeteria and see medical doctors, you know, choosing, you know, aspartame um, to add to their coffees or teas, just because they think it's better for their health. That's just absolutely mm-hmm. it's absurd. It's like, my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. these are but, the studies that, you know, that there are several of them, but these are the most important ones, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, aspartame itself has quite a storied history and, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit here about the, uh, how it kind of came into the, um, the modern food industry. And I'll try not to go into too much detail um, just to kind of give the main points. Um, as some of you may be aware and some may not that uh, Donald Rumsfeld actually uh, plays, a, plays a big role in this. <coughs> and um, looking at uh, the timeline, uh, aspartame was uh, discovered on accident. Uh, In 1965, December of 65, uh, James Schlatter, a chemist at the G.D. Searle Company, accidentally discovered aspartame. Um, When they discovered it, they realized it was 180 times sweeter than sugar and yet had no calories, and so they thought it was something worth looking into at the time. So this company, Searle, S-E-A-R-L-E, uh, is basically the uh, the one who developed and done um, introducing aspartame to the food industry. Um, By going from the 60s into the the early 70s, um, Searle was coming up with strategies um, to get aspartame into the market and um, petitioning the FDA uh, to help them kind of put a positive spin on it. Um, it looks like that uh, in um, 1971, uh, there was a, a neuroscientist named Dr. John Olney uh, who um, informed the company, informed the Searle Company, that his studies showed that aspartic acid, one of the ingredients of aspartame, caused holes in the brains of infant mice. Um, and this was independently confirmed uh, in some studies that were done in 1971. Um, but pushing on, the Searle Company spent many millions of dollars conducting the safety tests, doctoring the results. Uh, and they finally a- applied to the FDA for approval in 1973. Um, and then also later that year in, uh, in 1973, uh, one of the first FDA scientists to review the safety of aspartame uh, stated publicly that the information provided by a cereal company is inadequate to permit an evaluation of the potential toxicity of aspartame, um, that they, the the FDA scientists at that time proclaimed that further clinical tests were needed. Um, so it went back to the Sewell Company, and they went back and forth uh, for about a year. <clears throat> in 1974, the FDA granted aspartame its first approval for restricted use in dry foods only, not in beverages. Um, and in that same year, uh, Dr. John Olney, who had performed that first uh, test, and another doctor named Jim Turner filed um, official objections against the approval of aspartame and their petition triggered an FDA investigation into the laboratory practices of the GD Searle company. Um, They found that they were shoddy, full of inaccuracies, manipulated test data, uh, and Mm -hmm. they reported that, quote, they had never seen anything as bad as Searle's testing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that speaks to the credibility of the GD Searle company. But, uh, they actually began then uh, a few years later, in 1977, uh, grand jury proceedings to investigate whether indictments should be filed against Phil for knowingly misrepresenting their findings and concealing material facts, making false statements, um, and other things. Um, and so they were actually going to investigate them, you know, in a, a criminal indictment. Um, now, while this was going on in 1977. Uh, the law firm representing G.D. Searle uh, began job negotiations with the U.S. attorney in charge of the investigation, Samuel Skinner. And in that same year, just a few months later, Searle hired uh, Donald Rumsfeld as their CEO uh, to try to turn the company around. Now, at that time, Rumsfeld was a former member of Congress. Uh, He had been Secretary of Defense in the Ford Administration. Um, so he brought a lot of, you know, Washington ties and insider connections into his job as CEO of the G.D. Sewell Company. Um, now, it was at that time also in 77 that the uh, investig- uh, uh, FDA investigators compiled the Bressler report headed by Jerome Bressler. Uh, that found that 98 of the 196 animals died during one of Sewell's studies and were not autopsied oh. until later dates. Uh, in some cases, over one year after their death, so that's uh, that's you know at least half of the animals in the test uh, died. Um, they also found that a lot of them were uh, the ones, even the ones that didn't die, uh, got grand mal seizures from ingesting aspartame. Hmm. Um, so this story kind of goes on and on. There's a, there's a lot of back and forth uh, between the cereal company, between the FDA. There are scientists within the FDA who are trying to uh, you know, keep this information public and trying to discredit uh, G.B. Searle and Aspartame. But it just so happened that in uh, the kind of death blow to the anti-Aspartame movement at the time, uh, was in 1981 when uh, uh, Reagan was uh, sworn in as president. And at the time, uh, that was January of 1981, Rumsfeld was CEO at Searle, and he was also part of Reagan's transition team while he was being uh, sworn in. So what they needed was somebody on the inside at the FDA and uh, Rumsfeld as part of this team and take the man named Dr. Arthur Hole Hayes, Jr., uh, to be the new commissioner of the FDA. Dr. Hayes was a pharmacologist. He had no previous experience with food additives, uh, and, uh, but he had been involved with you know pharmacology. So they got him in as the uh, the new director of the FDA, and it was literally the day after Ronald Reagan's inauguration that Reagan issued an executive order eliminating the FDA's commissioner the FDA commissioner's authority to take action. Uh, and at that time, Soil Company reapplied to the FDA for approval to use aspartame as a food sweetener, and Hayes, now the the head of the FDA, appointed a five-person commission to review this decision the panel was actually going to uphold the ban on aspartame so hayes went back in installed a sixth member on the commission so that the vote would become deadlocked and then he personally broke the tie on the vote and that that was the uh the man who was um directly put into place by mellow and who was the ceo of the serial company the target of the investigation and part of reagan's administration who put the um head of the fda in place so they're all tied together you know there's there's literally no accountability going on here um so it looks like let's see here it was 1982 then that the fda announced that Searle had filed a petition that aspartame be approved as a sweetener in carbonated beverages and other liquids and then it was in 1983 uh, the National Soft Drink Association urged the FDA to delay the approval of aspartame pending further testing, um, and they had drafted an objection to this. Um, and I'm trying to find the date here. Oh, it was just that same year later in 1983 uh, that the FDA Commissioner uh, Hayes, who had been appointed by Donald Rumsfeld, uh, resigned uh, from the FDA. He's never spoken a word publicly since about aspartame, um, but it was uh, literally right at that time that the first carbonated beverages were uh, approved, and with aspartame were approved and then sold for public consumption. Um, so we can see that uh, you know the, the forces in the, the corporations tied in with the political administration. Uh, they're able to put certain people into place who control these votes. They're able to manipulate the votes get approval from the government which you know on the face of it is all legal even though it's totally shady um, they can get approval for aspartame and then get it into the public market even though there were so many studies that had been done before that showed it to be completely toxic and um, you know here we are uh, nearly thirty years later over thirty years later and uh, aspartame is still alive and well and pretty much in everything so that's the uh that's your Somewhat condensed history of aspartame and how
3: it came to be. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could almost make it's, a movie out of that.
3: <laughs> well, I'm sure they have. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that like there's so many people were coming forward and saying no, 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 this is bad, and that they just found ways to kind of like manipulate panels and all that sort of stuff to just to just force it through. Yeah.
2: Only people without conscience would choose, you know the most damaging thing among all the ingredients available to mass produce it in everything from medicines to like, you know, food for the elderly. And just, just yeah. a, for me, it's a clear indication that it's, you know, psychopathic signs, you know?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, it's, I mean, it's just for profit.
0: Um, in fact, in this, in this article here, um, after Aspartame was approved in 1983, um, in nineteen eighty five, uh, Rumsfeld, who was still CEO of G D Searle Company, um Searle was bought by Monsanto in nineteen eighty five and Rumsfeld received a twelve million dollar bonus. Huh. Which was no no joke in nineteen eighty five. Yeah. So you know, they're all connected, they're all shady, it's it's just for profit. Hmm.
1: And you would think, with the amount of money that these food corporations have, that they could really do the research and provide healthy food. I mean, it's, it it just seems like a no brainer to people that actually give a hoot about others.
0: Yeah. Sure. Well, um, <clears throat> coming into uh, coming out of the eighties and into modern times here, the uh, Let's take a look at some of the um newer sweeteners like Splenda. Doug, did you want to cover Splenda for a little bit and what that what that is made of?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um so yeah, the uh, Splenda came along, um it it's the chemical name for it is well the chemical name for it is a huge mouthful that I'm not even going to attempt, but um it's also known as sucralose. Um, uh it's a chemical that didn't exist on this planet until nineteen seventy six. Um, it's uh, a class of chemicals known as a chlorocarbon. Um that's uh in the same family as deadly pesticides like DDT, uh insecticides, biocides, disinfectants like Clorox bleach and uh World War 1 poison gas like uh, dichlorourea. Um so I mean, you know, structural similarity doesn't necessarily mean anything, but uh, in this case it actually does. Um Dr. James Bowen, MD is quoted as saying any chlorocarbons not directly excreted from the body intact can cause immense damage to the processes of human metabolism and eventually our internal organs. The liver is a detoxification organ which deals with ingested poisons. Chlorocarbons damage the hepatocytes, of their liver cells, um, and destroy them. In test animals, Splenda produce swollen livers, as do all chlorocarbon poisons, and also calcification of the kidneys of test animals in toxicity studies. Um, so it's an extremely synthetic chemical compound, um, despite all the advertising that says it's related to sugar. Like they like to try and, uh, and push it on people by saying, oh, no, no, it's just like sugar, only it's non-caloric. But uh, in reality, it's, it's highly synthetic. Um, it's also highly resistant to biodegradation. Uh, they find it in all kinds of like water supplies and things like that, because it just doesn't break down. Um, lots of different studies out there. Some have found that it's diabetes-promoting uh, um, and it has carcinogenic properties. Uh, it may cause leukemia, they found in animal studies. Um, and that finding actually caused the Center for Science and the Public Interest to downgrade its safety rating from safe to caution. Um, it's, behind, it's proposed to be behind the uptick in inflammatory bowel disease that we're seeing today. Um, produces highly toxic compound dioxin when it's heated. Even though it's sold as being uh, good for baking and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's when once it's heated, it actually um, releases dioxin. Um, so different studies have found, I'll just list off some of the things here. Uh, it can lead to shrunken thymus gland, enlarged liver and kidney, uh, uh abnormal histopathological histopatholo- changes in the spleen and thymus, uh, increased cecal weight, um, cecum being part of the, uh, the colon. Uh, Reduced growth rate, DNA damage, adverse changes in gastrointestinal bacteria, um, abnormal pelvic mineralization, decreased red blood cell count, hyperplasia of the pelvis, aborted pregnancy, um, decreased fetal body weights and placental weights, uh, bowel inflammation and Crohn's disease, uh, it triggers migraines, uh, and dysregulates HbA1c tests, so that's like a a long-term blood test for diabetics. Uh, a Duke University study recently showed that sucralose reduces the amount of good bacteria in the intestines, increasing the intestinal pH level, and uh, leads to increased body weight. So after all of that, people taking this stuff um, as a means of uh, reducing their calories and losing weight, it actually increases body weight. And that's probably through um, the mechanism of how it affects the uh, the good bacteria. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting because this is often um, promoted as a good alternative to aspartame because you know the the, the negative publicity on aspartame is getting around, so people are like, oh no 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 I'm not going to use the pink stuff I'm going to use the yellow stuff because it comes in like the yellow the little yellow packets. Um, but really this stuff is is no better it might even be worse. So um, pretty uh, pretty damning stuff and you really don't want to be using this. Interesting story. Um, I, I work in a health food store and at one point we had a, a children's supplement show up on on the shelves that was a, um, a children's multivitamin and probiotic. And uh, I was kind of taking a look at it. And I'm like, oh, a new product. Okay, what's this? And I'm kind of getting myself familiar with it. And what do you know, There on the, uh, the non-medicinal ingredients with sucralose. So uh, I brought that to the attention of my, uh, of my manager, and we got that off the shelf right away. But uh, it, it's unbelievable how, how insidious this stuff is and how it can easily get into uh, the food chain.
0: Okay. And that's an interesting connection there with uh, probiotics that ties us back to, uh, I had actually uh, skipped a, a, an item in our notes here, so let's roll the, the clock back just a minute, and Erica wa- wanted to cover an article about gut health and artificial sweeteners, talking about the relationship be- between those two, and it's just interesting that you said that that super was included in a probiotic, which is supposed to be pro-gut yeah. health, but... Yeah.
1: Yeah, and basically Doug pretty much covered the uh the study that was done at Duke University and for listeners who might be interested in reading more about it, the name of the article is Artificial Sweeteners. Latest Scientific Evidence Should Be a Death Blow. And this was carried back in two thousand fourteen on Alternet. And um basically just Like uh, Doug said, the link between artificial sweeteners, gut bacteria, and obesity has been charted well, and the Duke University study found that uh, Splenda reduces the amount of good bacteria in the intestines, increases the pH level, and leads to increased body weight. Um, Also, uh, in the article, it says uh, altering one's diet can be difficult, in part, it turns out, because the bacteria in your gut are controlling what you eat. According to an article published in the University of California, the paper reviews some recent studies that suggest gut bacteria influences the brain and the endocrine system via the vagus nerve, which connects the brain and gut. And um, yeah, so the article just basically talks about what Doug Doug explained really well. There's also another good article that goes into it, the same kind of topic called Sugar Substitutes and Game-Changing Gut Bugs. Uh, carried by validdaily.com at January 2015 of this year. And, um, he basically says that this, you know, the negative effect on the gut bacteria happens because most artificial sweeteners pass undigested into our intestines where they can, where they then directly encounter our gut's millennia of bacteria as we shared in our gut show, you know, gut the gut contains a diverse community of bacteria that processes food that our body can't break down and it produces necessary nutrients. And so we have a symbiotic relationship with these gut bacteria and our survival depends on them. Artificial sweeteners wreak havoc, uh throwing it out of balance. And he says, for example, saccharin common in fountain drinks, salad dressing, canned food, baked goods, and sweet and low, shifts the bacterial ecosystem to one that decreases your body's ability to regulate glucose in your blood. It does so mm-hmm. by increasing the ability of certain groups of bacteria to break down certain compounds in your food. This is thought to cause a chain reaction which begins with increased energy extraction and followed by fatty acid production and ends with glucose synthesis. This sugar ends up in your blood. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And, you know, like uh, Jonathan was sharing, it's approved by the FDA, you know.
2: Mm. Unbelievable.
1: (laughs) The Federal Death Association.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right.
3: Yeah, I find it really it ironic that these uh, that these all these artificial sweeteners end up doing exactly the opposite of what they're what they're purported to do. You know, this thing is increasing increasing the glucose um, that ends up in your blood, and you know, you're taking the people are taking these things as an alternative to sugar. It just it it just doesn't make any sense.
2: Exactly. Just like mainstream dietary guidelines, they do the opposite, and they're going to, yeah. to offer.
0: Yeah, you know, I I even hate to say this, but it's almost like if somebody were wanting to uh, get off of sugar, I would just say taper, you know, taper your use of sugar and don't use artificial sweeteners there. Sugar, natural cane sugar would almost be better than a lot of these things. Yeah, it's true. On the scale of evil. Well, um, talking about uh, hidden things and how the uh, propaganda gets kind of moved around. Gabby, do you want to cover the hidden names of MSG for a little bit? Or we can help people identify what MSG might be called when they're looking at their labels.
2: Yes, some of them are very controversial because they sound so benign. But yes, other than aspartame and MSG, out um, of anything it uh, probably has MSG. Um, then, you know, um, but also beef base, beef flavoring, beef stock, bouillon, broth of any kind, um, cashew made, chicken broth, chicken flavoring, um, gelatin, gelatinized anything, gum, you know, which is a very common additive in coconut, you know, cream, hydrolyzed anything, malted anything um l15 kombu extract natural flavor pork flavoring um umami and soy sauce these are all like very common names and uh Depending on where you buy it, uh, which brand, uh, which commercialized adver- commercialized version, you should be suspicious because it could contain these neurotoxic chemical food additives. And I posted the link of the article in the chat if, if somebody wants to see a full list. And the title of the article is 100 health Stapping Neurotoxins Are Heating in Packaged and Restaurant Foods. was published in 2009 uh yes these are a few of the names there's really like a very long list of them it's just basically highlights importance of these species of anything that comes in a package especially if it's not from a a organic store you know
0: sure now unfortunate it is that a lot of those are packaged as broth when uh you know mm-hmm. it would seem totally normal and healthy to just get some chicken broth or some beef broth, but as we can see it's it's best to make your own
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah, and kind of um on a interesting link from that article that Gabby just quoted a hundred health sapping neurotoxins um there's a kind of a question and answer, and it a woman wrote in asking about natural flavor and mm-hmm. um <laughs> or uh artificially, you know, what's the difference between artificially flavored or naturally flavored? And um I just want to read this definition and even the the man that attempted to answer this question said this is a mouthful. So the definition of natural flavor under the Code of Federal Regulations is quote, the essential oil, oleoresin, essence or extractive protein, hydroxylate, distillate, or any product of roasting, heating, or enzymolysis, which contain the flavoring constitutes derived from a spice, a fruit, a fruit juice, a vegetable, a vegetable juice, edible yeast, herb, bark, bud, root, leaf, or similar plant material, meat, seafood, poultry, eggs, dairy products, and fermentation products thereof whose significant function in food is flavoring rather than nutritional. So any other added flavor is there for artificial. For the record, monosodium glutamate or MSG used to flavor food must be declared on the label as such. And as I mentioned earlier, now they don't even have to do that unless it's 99% monosodium glutamate. Both artificial and natural flavors are made by flavorists in a laboratory by blending either natural, quote-unquote, chemicals or synthetic, quote-unquote, chemicals to create flavorings. Hmm. So, yeah, it's basically scientists are creating all these things in a lab. And, you know, they did ask about organic, you know, um, you know, and this is, again, a kind of a mouthful, but according to the national list under section uh, blah-de-blah-blah-blah, non-agricultural, non-organic substances are allowed as ingredients that can be labeled as organic or made with organic, including, quote, flavors, non-synthetic sources only, and must not be produced using synthetic solvents and carrier systems or any artificial preservatives. Other non-synthetic ingredients allowed in this section include acids such as microbiologically produced citric acid, dairy cultures, certain enzymes, and non-synthetic yeast that is not grown on petrochemical substrates and sulfate waste liquor. <laughs> So the bottom line is that you have to read labels carefully. Natural might not be so natural. Really? I wouldn't have guessed that. And then some organic foods might contain some of these natural flavors. There are still many gray areas for consumers and producers alike. Yeah, I'd say gray area is all what it is. Yeah,
2: totally yeah yeah I just like don't buy anything in a package, you know, and that's
0: it is I guess <laughs> that's what it comes down to, yeah,
2: well, and it's also
1: sometimes you know i I just walk through the store and just read the the labels for entertainment value more than anything,
0: <laughs> especially
1: if it says all natural or like even the the new one that I find very entertaining is no added MSG. So does that mean that yeah. there's already MSG in it and they haven't added any more to it?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so vague. Yeah. Yeah. Well Doug, do you want to cover this? Yeah, we have one here on our list that's uh, <clears throat> one of the more obscure uh flavor enhancers and I know we were kind of talking about how to pronounce it but it
3: as, Acesulfame. as yeah. aces, oh. aces, potassium otherwise known okay. as acesulfame k yeah um yeah sure i'll I'll just riff on this a little bit it's it's one of the more recent additions to uh to the chemical sweetener family um as, k is sometimes referred to as just ace k um, it's marketed under the name Sunnet and Sweet One. Uh, similar to aspartame, it's about 200 times sweeter than sugar. Um, about two thirds of uh, the sweetness of uh, saccharin, or one third out of sucralose. Um, because it's so new, there isn't a lot of research out there on it. But what is out there is, um, you know, pretty much makes you want to never touch the stuff. Um, a 2010 Drexel University study with uh, the School of Public Health of Philadelphia uh, stated that acesulfame potassium was approved by the FDA despite poor quality toxicity tests. Uh, they state in that study that it's possible the FDA discouraged the National Toxicity Program from conducting bioassays on uh, acesulfame K. So no real surprise there, given what we just found out about the, the history of um, aspartame. So it looks like uh, the FDA has had their hands in this one as well. Um, It is potentially carcinogenic, although the studies are kind of conflicting on this. Um, Some studies have found it did uh, cause cancer. Others found it did not. Um, Another study in 2008 in the Journal of Drug and Chemical Toxicology found that uh, along with aspartame and saccharin, acesulfame K has potential genotoxic activity. They found it it caused uh, DNA breaks in the bone marrow cells of mice. Um, The researchers in their findings say that this represents a potential health risk associated with the exposure to these agents. Um, It's also been shown to have clastogenic effects. Um, That means chromosome damage. Um, And this is even at the, quote, no toxic effect levels that the WHO and FAO have established. So even at these levels that they they say have no toxic effect, they actually are finding chromosome damaging effects. It uh, acts directly on the pancreatic islet cells um, that causes greater insulin release from glucose. So this was just done in vitro, uh, but when they exposed um, these pancreatic cells to uh, a glucose solution and then added in the acid K, it increased the amount of insulin they actually released. Um, They've also found that uh, in in vivo, in rat studies, that um, it does increase insulin release. Um, so I just find this rather ironic because again, this is this is exactly the kind of thing that you're trying to um, avoid. You know, a lot of diabetics are told, oh, you know, um, use these uh, artificial sweeteners instead of sugar because it'll have less of an effect on your insulin. Well, lo and behold, it does have just as much uh, of an effect on, on insulin. Um, the gut senses aspartame K as if it were sugar, so it treats it as if it has consumed sugar. And some research has shown that chronic consumption of it uh, has a moderate but limited effect on neurometabolic function, suggesting it may alter neurologic function. So isn't that nice? You get altered neurologic function along with your sweetness. Um, So you often find this one in in products in a blend of different artificial sweeteners, so it's often uh, paired with um, aspartame or sucralose. Um, because apparently on its own it has uh like somewhat of an unpleasant taste um so they they kind of buffer it with these other artificial sweeteners, so you get a whole cocktail there of all kinds of uh terrible side effects so watch uh watch your packaging for that one as well
0: um, it looks like two, uh, doug, did you want to cover a couple of these articles here that we were we were talking about um we have uh, Isolated amino or amino acids and their cytotoxins, and then talking about the dose.
3: Yeah, yeah, sure. It, it, it's um, I, I just wanted to cover this a little bit because um, you know it's, it is something that I get questions about. You know, you get lot, got a lot of warnings, particularly about MSG, um, you know, which stands for monosodium glutamate. And then people say, well, you know, is that the same thing as glutamine? Because, you know, like, you see glutamine in, like, gut healing, healing protocols and, like, guys who are doing workouts and stuff are often taking glutamine um, as, as like, kind of a beneficial thing. Um, even with things like um, aspartic acid, uh, you do see, like, supplements um, in the store, things like calcium aspartate or magnesium aspartate, where they, they actually have bound mineral to these amino acids in order to uh you know as a delivery system so i i get a lot of these questions like are these things bad am i actually ingesting kind of uh, neurotoxins here and you know the difference kind of lies in 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 the structural difference between these two so um, glutamate is what you find in 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 monosodium glutamate Um, and monosodium glutamate is a salt um, that that contains glutamine Um, glutamate is otherwise known as glutamic acid and it's what your body actually uses as a neurotransmitter. Um, whereas glutamine, um, which is also sometimes called referred to as L-glutamine, but any glutamine is L-glutamine, um, it's neurologically inactive. Um, but it is used by the cells of the intestinal lining for repair and integrity, and it's used as a muscles for fuel. Um, one of the big uh, differences in this is that... Um, the villi in the intestinal tract, so they 're like little little uh, microscopic uh, fingers that kind of stick out of the intestinal tract to uh, to absorb your food. Um, they actually convert glutamate to glutamine, so uh, glutamate is is the one that can potentially be uh, a neurotoxin, um, but the, these villi actually convert it into glutamine, which is more innocuous and then your body can can convert it back to glutamate when it needs to use it as a neurotransmitter. Uh the liver and the kidneys can also make this conversion. Um the problem is that damage to these villi from things like gluten and casein and soy and corn lectins and all these uh these terrible things in the diet that can damage the uh, the villi actually prevent this conversion from happening. Uh this uh that kind of leads to an overwhelming level of glutamate um being absorbed and ending up outside Of the nerve cells and when it's outside of the nerve cells that's when it acts as a neurotoxin. Um, So MSG is the glutamate form and excessive amounts or even small amounts in people who have uh, in gut compromised situations uh, can cause these neurotoxic uh, reactions. Um, uh, Aspartame is a chemical that contains both aspartate and phenylalanine. Uh, These amino acids on their own aren't harmful you know, amino acids are things that we take in every single time we eat any kind of protein. So by themselves, these things aren't damaging at all. Um, you know, phenylalanine is actually an essential amino acid. It's one that you need to take in because the body can't produce it from anything else. Um, but, you know, some people are so highly sensitive Um and you know you should read that as gut damage, basically, because I'm pretty sure that anybody who is is highly sensitive to MSG is actually just people who have you know people who have this gut damage. Um, they can't take in any isolated form of these amino acids. So even if they're taking a glutamine supplement, they might have these kinds of reactions to them simply because their their body isn't able to make these kinds of conversions. So just to quote uh, Dr. Russell Blaylock here, who uh, Erica was talking about earlier in the show, uh, he says the major use for high dose glutamine would be to repair the gastrointestinal injury. Uh, In any cases, I would recommend short-term use only. Those with a history of the following conditions should avoid glutamine, even for short-term use. As people who have had a stroke, neurodegenerative disease, pregnancy, malignancy, recent vaccinations, ADHD, hypoglycemia, autism, multiple sclerosis, or other neurological disorders. So I think it's important to note that some of the watchwords for MSG ingredients on the list, um, you know, they're not, they they, they can be kind of misleading. You know, like people see beef broth on an ingredients list, and then they're like, well, or on a a list of of, um, other names for MSG, and they're like, well, wait a minute, I eat beef broth all the time. Um, Well, beef broth in and of itself is not actually harmful, assuming that they haven't, uh, you know, um, don't have this this intense kind of gut damage. Um, gelatin is the same thing. You know, eating gelatin isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, but if your body's not able to convert this glutamate into glutamine, then it might actually end up giving you this sort of reaction. Um, also important to note that uh, peptide-bonded amino acids. So this is amino acids that are still in their protein form, so like things when you're eating a meal, for instance, like when you eat uh, a piece of meat or something like that, those, those uh, amino acids that you're getting there are still bound together. Um, you know, as opposed to the free form amino acids that you get when, uh, from food manufacturers or from uh, supplements. Um, these bonded uh, amino acids are actually better um, because they, um, the individual amino acids actually compete for uptake. So you're actually able to take in these amino acids better in food form. So that kind of draws into question why you would want to be taking them in in isolated form anyway, if you, get them, if you can actually absorb them a lot better from your food. Um, I just wanted to say one other thing here, because uh, sometimes you'll see on a label um, a warning that a food contains phenylalanine. And, you know, a, a lot of people tend to think that phenylalanine is actually, um, you know, some kind of toxin or something like that. And they see this warning and they, they're they avoiding it. The only reason that that has that there, like I said, phenylalanine is an essential amino acid. You actually really need it. Um, the reason for it is that there's a, t- a condition known as fetal um, which is people who are unable to process phenylalanine properly and is extremely dangerous for them to get that in to take that in. So, the reason that you see those warnings on the packages um, is is for those people who have that condition and and generally people who who don't have that condition uh, don't need to worry about phenylalanine. That being said, most of the substances, most of the the, the foods that you see with that warning on them, it's because it contains aspartame. So, you you know, take take a look, make sure it doesn't actually have um, aspartame. Um, You know, phenylalanine is something that you find uh, throughout the food chain. But um, isolated phenylalanine, uh, you will find those kinds of um, warnings on there. Um,
2: yeah, I, I guess I could just go into... Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to comment. That it is horrifying. It's really like, gosh, let's just stay away from it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, it just comes back to what you were saying before, Gabby. Like, it's best to just avoid these packaged foods. You know they might be convenient, but uh, but in the end you really don't know what you're getting uh, unless you uh, you know are pulling out, pulling up web pages and doing all kinds of research before you actually use any of them. So you know cooking your own food is is a much much better option.
2: Yeah, it's enjoyable. You know, really tastes so good. It's like yeah. Yeah. Let's
3: cool? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess um, I could go right... Sorry, go
0: ahead, Jonathan. No, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to
3: say I could go into that other article, too. If, if, unless you had something else Yeah, I think, we have, I
0: think we have time, yeah.
3: Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I wrote an article um, a while back. I guess it was uh, 2012, and it was called Everyone Knows Artificial Sweeteners Aren't Good for You, So Why Are People Still Eating Them? Um, and, you know, it, I kind of went into uh, like at first just kind of establishing that, yes, these things are harmful. And most of that was done just through links because there's so much written about that. And I didn't want this to be just yet another article about all the, you know, listing all the negative effects of uh, of artificial sweeteners. Um, but really kind of looking at the the question of why people are still eating them. Like, you know, this information is all out there. Um, and I address the possibility that some people don't know, and I know that is a possibility, but when you've got people like Dr. Oz being interviewed by Oprah um talking about he won't feed it to his kids and that um you know he won't you know d- that these things are are damaging um you know it's it's hard to believe that anybody out there doesn't know at least that there is some controversy around this um The other possibility is that people don't care, and you know that's absolutely certainly a possibility. There are a number of people out there who don't really care about this kind of stuff and, and will eat whatever kind of is put in front of them as long as it tastes good. Um, another possibility is that there's too much conflicting information. And, you know, the the food industry is very good at countering any kind of negative uh, press that they get. Uh, Gabby was mentioning with the whole Diet Coke thing that, you know, their their sales went down when that, uh, when that study came out. But, you know, I, I've seen such a huge push lately from them about um, you know, I think they came out with, like, a Coke Zero recently that was an alternative to Diet Coke. And, like, so they're they're working really hard to kind of counter all that. And there are a lot of, you know, basically shills that you see on TV and on the news and things like that talking about how, you know, the negative effects are exaggerated and, and all these sorts of things. So that's a possibility. But I think that the, the main reason for this is, um, you know, the idea that, the the authority it's the appeal to authority fallacy right where basically it's like the authority figures have stated that this stuff is not harmful and these authority figures of course are people like donald rumsfeld and uh and all his ilk who are really only interested in in pushing their products for 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 the money um but because these authority figures are basically saying that uh you know these things aren't harmful then people are more inclined to kind of believe that And, you know, the average person out there is not a person who is reading your ingredients labels, who is researching this stuff, who is reading kind of alternative information um, to find out what's really going on with this stuff. It really is uh, your average person is just grabbing something off the shelf. Um, They saw it advertised on TV. So off they go. This is is something that they're going to eat. Um you know there's all these kind of uh fallacies that I hear people say all the time you know if this stuff wasn't harm- if this stuff was harmful it wouldn't be on the grocery store shelf. you know there are people who are tests for this kind of stuff um if it was so bad, then no one would eat it, and companies would stop producing it um you know if I was having any negative effects from it, I would notice you know all these things um are so kind of ingrained that People just kind of, you know, believe that these things or, you know, it's not even necessarily that they've made a conscious decision to do this. It's like the things remain on the shelves. Therefore, people are going to eat it. It's as simple as that. They just don't have the wherewithal to kind of suspect that anything on their grocery store shelf might actually be something that might be doing them some harm um right. you know they, there's there's an inherent trust in these government bodies like the FDA you know that they these people are kind of looking out for us um and that is kind of hilarious in and of itself when you look at actually who the FDA is um the FDA uh started out as the Division of Chemistry back in 1862 uh later they changed their name to the Bureau of Chemistry um and um, At a much later date, in 1930, they finally changed their name to the FDA, the um, Federal Department of Agriculture. Um, And, you know, at its time when it was created, its job was to approve and sanction products from the chemical industry. It never was, and could be argued that it is still not, um, despite popular belief, to protect consumers from harmful chemicals. Um, Their whole mandate was to get chemicals um, you know, put into products and purchased by the public, um, whether that be through uh, drugs, through um, you know cleaning products, or through foods. Um, so, yeah, it's it's like the the division of chemistry basically acted as a legal shield between consumers and the industry. Um, it was kind of like a buffer to make sure that you know because it was approved by the FDA, um, consumers had no recourse. If these things turned out to be uh, harmful, so you know the FDA has this um, this uh, their their approval system, which is uh, is called GRAS, G R A S, generally recognized as safe, and it's basically safe harbor status for any chemical that they're putting into the uh, into the food chain. Um, and it makes, like I said, it leaves the uh, the general consumer with any without any legal recourse. Against chemical uh, chemical industries, you know the the industry can say, well, you know this got grass status from the FDA, so you know it's not our fault, you know it, it was it was approved, um, so that the industry is shielded and given plausible deniability. So it's just w- when you look at the whole picture of things, it's just so ridiculous. You know everybody kind of trusts. You know if it's on the shelf, then it must be safe. You know it's been approved by the FDA, FDA therefore it must be safe. When really these things are not. Um, there for your safety whatsoever. So I yeah. just thought that that was something something interesting. Totally. Yeah. Very interesting.
0: Well, I just want to cover uh, shortly here before we go to Zoya's uh, segment for today some uh, some safe sweeteners, and um, people might be wondering, well, you know, do I have to give up sweetness entirely, you know, to to avoid some of these negative downfalls? Um, not just of sugar alone, but of course all the artificial sweeteners that we've been talking about. Um, <clears throat> I'm reading here from uh, wheatbelly.com, the Wheatbelly Lifestyle Institute. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the, uh, with the book, Wheat Belly. Um, <clears throat> they have on their website here a little list of some safe sweeteners, and some of these you may be familiar with. Um, they have two uh, that actually personally I don't recognize, but The first three here are stevia, erythritol, which is E-R-Y-T-H-R-I-T-O-L, and xylitol, which is X-Y-L-I-T-O-L. The stevia, uh, stevia plants are naturally sweet, often called sweet leaf. Um, Some people where the stevia leaf naturally naturally grows will chew the leaves um, to get some kind of a sweet snack. Stevia is often obtained in, in pure liquid or powdered form and is also mixed with other natural sweeteners like erythritol and xylitol. Um, maltodextrin is also a common ingredient uh, added to stevia, um, but personally, I like, um, just be, I actually use stevia most of the time uh, in my cooking and, uh, you know, to mix with like the fat bomb custard and things like that to add some sweetness. Um the standard uh, rate of conversion uh, for stevia that I'm familiar with is uh, one teaspoon of stevia equals one cup of sugar. Although I don't, I personally don't think that that's actually very accurate. I think it'd probably be more like a, like a tablespoon of stevia would be equal to a cup of sugar. But um, another one here is erythritol, uh, which is a naturally occurring sugar which is found in fruit. Um, erythritol yields no increase in blood sugar even with the quantity of 15 teaspoons at one time there are less than 1.6 calories per teaspoon of erythritol studies have demonstrated modest reductions in blood sugar and hemoglobin a1c um, in people with diabetes who use erythritol uh, it's less sweet than table sugar and it also has a sort of unique cooling sensation similar to peppermint although quite a bit less intense um so that it, it doesn't hold up quite as well as stevia in baking, but it can be used to add that kind of a cooling sensation. And uh, xylitol, uh, also a natural sugar in fruits and vegetables. Xylitol is produced by the human body as a part of normal metabolism. Um, teaspoon for teaspoon, xylitol is equivalent in sweetness to sucrose. Uh, it yields two-thirds of the calories of sucrose, and because digestion occurs in the small intestine rather than the stomach, triggers a slower and less sharp rise in blood glucose than sucrose does. Um, most people experience minimal rise in blood glucose with xylitol. In one study of young volunteers, experienced six teaspoons of sucrose, increased blood sugar by 36 milligrams, um, while xylitol increased blood sugar by six milligrams. Several uh, studies have demonstrated positive health effects, including prevention of tooth decay, ear infections in children, both key to effects of inhibiting bacterial growth in the mouth. Um, the two other ones that they list here are monk fruits and inulin. Um, these are two uh, newer sort of forms of uh, natural sweeteners. Monk fruit, also known as Lohan Guo, uh, is relatively new. Uh, it says here that its track record suggests that, like stevia, it is naturally sourced and benign sweetener. Many people prefer the taste of monk fruit over stevia because there's less aftertaste. And then inulin, I-N-U-L-I-N, is a storage form of starch for plants. Uh, It says here that humans lack the digestive apparatus to break it down to sugars. The bowel flora, such as as lactobacillus species, are able to metabolize inulin to fatty acids, the so-called prebiotic effect. Um, And that has been associated with improved intestinal health, reduced potential for colon cancer, improved blood sugar, lower blood pressure, lower triglycerides, et cetera. Um, so you have a number of options if you want to, uh, to find a natural sweetener to use. Um, personally, I recommend Stevia. I know that uh, other uh, people, that are, some of our listeners and some of our hosts here have also used erythritol and xylitol. I personally don't have much experience with those, um, but they're all uh, pretty safe. Of course, unless you know, just overdo it and eat a ton of it all day long. As with anything, um, but the recipe that we're going to do after Zoya's segment here today is uh, is intended to be used as studio. So um, let's take a, uh, a few minutes here and go to Zoya. She's going to talk to us today about food additives in pet food, so we can get enlightened on that uh, a little bit. But we will be back after this. <laughs>
4: Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about additives and preservatives added to pet food. In the previous segments, we already covered the disadvantages and dangers of feeding your pet with commercial dry or moist pet food. So this segment is also going to assist you with making a decision to gradually move toward more natural, balanced and species-appropriate diet for your pet. Since animal fats are used in dog food and they are also subject to spoilage, becoming rancid not too long after manufacture, to extend the shelf life of any pet food, suppliers must add a preservative to many fat or oil ingredients. Preservatives can be so-called natural or synthetic. Natural preservatives are typically made from vitamin C or E. You, you you will usually find them on the dog food ingredients list using some form of the words uh, tocopherol or ascorbate. They are considered to be fa- uh, safe, but still not ideal and can contribute to various uh, allergies or maladies. Uh, but when it comes to artificial preservatives, there is no doubt that they can cause harm. Used uh, long-term, they can add a notable Uh, risk of toxicity to any dog or cat food. For example, uh, Isoxyquin is one artificial preservative to watch for on a label. That's because uh, Isoxyquin is not only used as a preservative but also as a pesticide and as a hardening agent for making synthetic rubber. Isoxiquin has been under investigation by the FDA as, po- as a possible cause for certain liver and blood problems. In addition, the preservative is not permitted for use in Australian dog foods, nor is it approved within the European U- Union. Yet, to this day, isoxiquin is still commonly found in many popular brands of dog food. Other common chemical additives are for example, uh, propylene glycol, used to help preserve the moisture content uh, in some commercial uh, dog foods. Because of its proven ability to cause a serious type of blood disease in some animals called Heinz body anemia, uh, propylene glycol uh, has been banned by the FDA to, for use in cat food. But unfortunately, it can still be used to make dog food. Another preservative is named BHA, a butylated hydroxyanisole. Uh, According to the U.S. National Institute of Health, BHA in the diet has been found to consistently produce certain types of tumor in laboratory animals. Uh, another preservative is BHT, butylated hydroxytoluene. The chemical is used in certain dog foods to prevent fats and oils from prematurely spoiling. In other words, BHT can extend the shelf life of fat in a food product. But that's not all it can do. BHT can also be found in cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, rubber, jet fuels, petroleum products, the oil in electrical transformers, and even embalming fuel fluid. That's why, like so many other artificial preservatives, BHT has become the subject of considerable controversy. It seems the same, uh, the same chemical qualities which make BHT an effective preservative can also make it a subject for causing cancerous uh, tumors. And another preservative, it's uh, TBHQ. It's an acronym for the word uh, tetriary, Uh, Butylgidroquanone, a fat preservative added to a dog food to increase its shelf life. Well, but as with others, it's not uh, the only thing it it is used for. uh, TBHQ is also used to stabilize certain explosive compounds and to make varnishes and uh, raisins. Here's the problem. TBHQ has been found to produce precancerous stomach uh, tumors in laboratory animals and it can cause damage to a cell's DNA. What's more, further studies have found that prolonged exposure to TBHQ may lead to other types of cancer too. And the last one we are going to talk about is propylgallate. New research suggests the dog food preservative propylgallate may be responsible for causing a potentially dangerous health issue for dogs that's because of the chemicals unique ability to mimic the negative effects of the female hormone estrogen although the fda insists that agent can be considered safe recent studies have linked propyl gallate with a special group of hormone-like compounds known as xenoestrogens xenoestrogens have the potential to adversely affect Reproductive health. In humans, they have the ability to transform a normal breast cell into a cancer cell. Propyl galate can also affect a developing fetus as well as decrease the sperm count in males. Feeding a dog or a cat with the same chemical additives, not just occasionally, but with every meal certainly favors the creation of problems associated with long-term exposure to any toxic substance it's that cumulative exposure that causes various diseases that additive effect of any of using any artificial preservative uh, consistently especially when it's suspected of causing uh, cancer also just like in humans commercial pet food causes various allergies and intolerances and these food allergies and intolerances are being cited as causes of bad behavior, such as hyperactivity, not to mention numerous diseases and illnesses. For example, TV vet Joe Inglis, who also has his own line of natural pet food said, some big brands are hoodwinking the public with the food that they put out and labeling in such a way so that pet owners cannot make an informed choice. Profits are being put before the welfare of pets and it's irresponsible to be using all these artificial additives in pet foods when there is so much anecdotal evidence that they cause harm. The term EC-permitted additives covers a list of about 4,000 chemicals. Artificial colors such as E-102 uh, Tartazine and E110, a sunset yellow, have been shown to cause hyperactivity in children. And colors such as blue, too, have been shown to have the potential to cause tumors, as have antioxidants, including BHA. Mr. Inglis also says that over the 12 years of his practice, he has seen a substantial rise in cases of problems caused by poor diet, including allergies and intolerances, and behavioral issues linked to artificial additives in food. It became normal to hear from time to time about food recalls or scandals due to mass illness or pet pet deaths. The latest big scandal had to do with Nestle Purina, a pet care company, maker of a popular pet food brand, Beneful. A dog owner has filed a class actions lawsuit against the maker of a popular pet food brand alleging that thousands of dogs have been sickened or died from eating its uh, dry dog foods. The suit alleges Beneful dry dog food contains an ingredient toxic to animals, propylene glycol, a chemical used in automobile antiphase. The lawsuit also claims Beneful contains harmful uh, mycotoxins, toxins produced by fungus that occurs in grains. In the suit, uh, Lucido alleges that in the past four years, there have been more than 3,000 complaints online about dogs becoming ill or dying after eating Beneful, having shown consistent symptoms including stomach and related internal bleeding, liver malfunction or failure, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, weight loss, seizures, and kidney failure. The legal filing cites the accounts of a number of pet owners, including one who states that after eating Benful for just over a week, my dog's liver failed. She was drinking way more than usual, stopped eating and was uh, was vomiting. She spent two days in intensive care with IV fluid and IV antibiotics. There was also a case when pets were sickened after eating pet jerky uh, treats made in China. At the time, Food and Drug Administration officials said that uh, pet treats were linked to more than 1,000 deaths in dogs and more than 4,800 complaints in animals' illness. Apparently, also three humans got sick. I hope that by now it should be clear to every conscientious pet owner that they are playing Russian roulette with their pet's health every time uh, they feed them with commercial food. The solution? to feed them with natural species-appropriate diet. In many cases, it is even much cheaper than many more sophisticated and specialized dry foods out there. You can listen to previous pet health segments and read articles on Sotnet to learn more about feeding your pet in a way that will contribute to the long and happy lives. This is it for today. Hope you found the information useful. Have a nice day and goodbye.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Zoe. That's some really valuable information. Certainly always <clears throat> good for us to be as concerned with our pet's health as we are with our own and to keep an eye out for what's in their food and not just give them the uh, the standard kibble from the store. Even though, you know, overall it might be more affordable, you're really damaging your pet's health with a lot of that material. Um, well, I guess we're, uh, we're nearing the end here. And to wrap up our show for today I wanted to do um, sweet pork ribs uh, I guess you could call this sweet ginger pork ribs so I'll try to go over this quickly uh, it's, it's pretty standard if you've ever done low and slow ribs in the oven um, if you're writing this down the uh, the temp that you want to preheat your oven to is 225 degrees um, and it would go with uh, two racks of uh, baby back ribs um, uh, and basically just lay those out on a pan Um, and then, uh, to prep for this, uh, you need, you can do this with some ginger extracts, but for my purposes, I really like to go with, uh, raw ginger. So you take raw ginger and, uh, just carefully peel it so that you don't take too much of the actual ginger off. Just take the peel off, uh, chop that up into little chunks and put about a cup of it into your blender. You want a chunky blender for this because ginger is so tough. It's, it's really hard to blend, but, um, Start pulsing it until it starts to break down in the blender and then add a little bit of water at a time until you come up with kind of a, uh, you know, slightly more liquidy kind of paste, a ginger paste. And you want to blend it really, really well so that all of the ginger is mixed in with the water and it's blended up pretty much as much as it can be. Um, And then run that through like a muslin cloth, you know, like like a cotton cloth bag or a cloth filter of some kind that's really fine and uh, twist that around and just squeeze all of the juice out of there into a cup. um, And that is your ginger extract. And that is really, really potent, really strong. Um, But then what I like to do is go ahead and brush the ribs uh, with the ginger. Uh, So just get a standard kind of kitchen brush and brush that on until they're totally covered. And then uh, kind of dust the ribs with um, salt, pepper, coriander, um, cardamom and stevia. Um, so uh, there's not necessarily specific uh, measurements for each of these, but as you can imagine, if your ribs are laid out, you just dust, uh, you know, the entire top of them uh, with this spice mixture. So that is uh, salt and pepper, pepper, uh, ground coriander, ground cardamom, and uh, stevia. And add stevia into that mix uh, at about equal portions uh, to the other ones. And... <coughs> Then you want to you want to put those uh, put the ribs into the oven at 225 degrees. Um, bake them for about uh, two hours. You want to put the the meat side down um, into your baking dish, and you can cover this if you have like a roasting pan, uh, or you cannot. It really make a huge difference, um, but you know they're just going to be a little bit more tender if you have them inside of a roasting pan. Um, and then at, uh, at two hours, uh, take them out, uh, flip the ribs over using a spatula and then, um, put your spice mixture on one more time and brush it again with the ginger mixture and then go for another, uh, three, another one and a half to two hours. So your total cook time, uh, should top out at about four hours. Um, but so you got two hours at the beginning, take them out, flip them over baste and spice them again, put them in again for another one and a half hours, about 20 minutes to 30 minutes before you're done. Take them out and just baste them one more time with the, uh, with the ginger extract and put them in for another 20 to 30 minutes. And, and when you take them out, they're going to be super tender. Uh, you really only need a fork uh, to eat these ribs unless you like eating them by hand. Um, they're just going to fall right off the bone. And I'm a big fan of the mixture of the, uh, the ginger flavor with the stevia, it makes a nice uh sweet pork rib uh without having to use sugar or barbecue sauce or any kind of mm-hmm. unknown ingredients. So wow. that sounds really good. Yeah.
3: One one little helpful hint by the way, a good way to peel ginger is to use a spoon. Because it's blunt oh, and there you, go. you you end up you end up only taking off the, the, the skin for it. Yeah. Works nice. well.
0: Nice. That's a great trick. Cool. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the show uh, today. Thanks for sticking with us, and thanks to everybody in our chat who was uh, offering questions and some extra information. Um, and we will be back next week. We're still discussing our, our topic for next week, but uh, we will. Um, it looks like we may be talking about uh, what to feed your baby, and for um, you know mothers with uh, young children or for expecting mothers, uh, what to look for there. Um, but we, are, as I said, we have yet to determine exactly what our topic will be for next week, so uh, if you're on the, uh, the cast forum, you can find that information um, as the day gets closer. And uh, in the meantime, be sure to stay up to date with the news on SOT on SOTT.net, and uh, come back to Blog Talk Radio here at 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday. Well, so thanks very much, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everybody.